In the cultural heritage community, Christy S. Coleman is a superstar. She is executive director of the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation, an educational agency of the Commonwealth of Virginia that administers the Jamestown Settlement and the American Revolution Museum at Yorktown. Known throughout the country as a tireless advocate for the power of museums, narrative correction, and diversity and belonging, she has held leadership roles at the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation, the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History, and the American Civil War Museum. Christy Coleman has earned numerous awards for her impact, including three honorary doctorates. That seems almost excessive. <laughs> In 2018, Time Magazine named her one of the 31 people changing the South and if you sit quietly through her lecture, she'll explain to you why 31, which I'm not really sure about. But, and in the following year, Worth Magazine named her one of the 29 women changing the world. In April of this year, she was awarded the David McCulloch Prize for Excellence in American Public history. An accomplished screenwriter and public speaker, she has appeared on several national news and history programs, most recently appearing in such award-winning documentaries as Grant, Abraham Lincoln, Black Patriots Civil War Heroes, Neutral Ground, and When the Monuments Came Down. We are delighted to have Christy Coleman among us this evening. Please join me in welcoming her. Good afternoon, everyone. How are you? Good, good. They told me you've been in like six hours of classes and not to be boring and all of that. And to be mindful that you have, you're tired. So I will do my best to engage you the only way I know possible, which is through storytelling, okay? Um, and particularly as it relates to the power of the book, the power of that original manuscript, the power of the words that are often printed on those pages, and frankly, the limitations of those objects. Because we deal with them in the history, the public history side of things, every day. Yes, our museums, we also hold archives. We hold objects. In some rare cases, institutions also hold human remains or animal remains. And all of these tools for us are an opportunity to tell the story of us. And that story has been evolving. It has been changing. Uh, you know, I've been in this business now a long time, right? I mean, um, I, I 
I started doing museum work when I was 17. Now, granted, they didn't know I was 17 when I got that job. <laughs> Honest to God, you know, hand to God. Um, they didn't know I was 17. And then when they found out, they were like, oh. Okay, I guess we got to keep her. We've invested this much, right? And that was at Colonial Williamsburg. Um, and that was in the um, 80s. And at that point, they were doing something called character interpretation. Now, if you're not familiar with this, and I, I do make a distinction. There's, you know, in our world, there are distinctions between character interpretation, living history, character actors. I mean, there's all this nomenclature. But there's basically three things going on at historic sites that, where people use historic clothing. Um, and the one thing is the clothing is a part of the exhibition, you know, and the, and the person that you are meeting is themselves. They are that 20th century person who just happens to be dressed in historic clothing and they are telling you how they made widgets in X time period. Okay? I have often found this the most useless way of history teaching. But we like our widget making for some reason because it, it, it wraps up in something, quite frankly, that's, it wraps up in nostalgia. And I'm not saying there isn't value. Please, there is absolutely value to the preservation of these techniques and skills and ways of doing things. But when the widget making becomes misrepresented as the history, we lose something. The second thing that happens when a person is in character work, or in, I'm sorry, in historic clothing, is um, often very, very kitschy. And it makes me insane every time I see it. It's that person that walks up to you and says, oh, what is that strange little thing that you have on your wrist? Right? I want to slap them stupid. Because that's not history either and they think it's their hook to get you to ask them about the past. But what they've done is they've made the past foreign and almost laughable, and it's not. And then there's the character work. And that's the work that involves all of those rare books and manuscripts and things that we were required to read and the inventory lists, in my case, because I was portraying an enslaved person. So I had to read inventory lists for the households. And with that inventory list, working with curators and academic historians and others to try to piece together a person's life, and then trying to think about the environment in which they were, they were in, and using my talents at that point, not only in terms of the research that I was really into, but obviously, um, I shouldn't say obviously, obviously I have a love of the theater, right? And so, and theater is really what brought me into museums. Um, there's a discipline to theater as well. You have to understand, and I, and I for myself, at that young age, um, I created for myself this thing called keep it simple in trying to figure out how to create my characters. And simple, each of those letters was an acronym for, it was an acronym for the stages. What does the scholarship say? What type of other investigation do I need to do? What are the manners of that person? What is the physicality of that person? How are they centered? How do they speak in terms of language? And then I would evaluate what was working and do it again. Yeah, I wasn't your average bear at 17. But that's how we did it. 
you know, and this is basically the historic method, right? Except I was doing that through a persona, trying to give this person life and dignity in a space where I'm sad to say 40 years later that I would probably be answering the same questions over again. And I will tell you, the questions that we got back then, after all of that research and pouring through things, my colleagues who still do this work, my friends who still do this work, it's still being asked. America has a really interesting challenge. And those questions, if you're interested, I'm sure you could probably guess. But it goes something like this. Were they a good master? Are you happy? And every now and then you might get a feminine question, right? How do you handle something that is very natural for a woman, right? How do you do that? And there's a list of other things that aren't so pleasant that we used to get asked. But we stayed in the period as much as possible unless it became real, real violence. And that's not to say that some of those questions aren't tacitly violent. But when someone is deliberately trying to trigger you, that's real violence. And we did deal with that too at different points. I had people call me the N-word when I was dressed in colonial clothing, trying to do my thing. Um, all of this is to say museums, unlike other types of history institutions, unlike other archival institutions, the advantage that we have is that we can use a variety of methodologies to reach our audiences where they are. Because our audiences do come to us from a variety of positions. You're fortunate because in rare books, and usually and even for us in archives, the people who are coming are looking for something, they are working on something. They are digging into the past and they are getting very specific or they're doing you know, genealogical work or whatever that is, right? If they're coming, they're coming with a very specific need. The public doesn't come to the museums that way. They really don't. They come to us in one of three ways. I'm giving you all of these things, so I'm hoping y'all are keeping notes, right? Okay, so a, a museum visitor comes to us one of three ways. The first way is they're actually looking for history. And when I say history, I am talking about they are looking for the forensic. They are looking to connect that historical past to some point of relevancy. That's how the, that's how the scholarship advances anyway, right? Each generation comes to it with a new question that they have, and they want to go back to that source material and use any new techniques that have come into the, in, in, into the mix to help them decipher the past in a deeper, more meaningful way. So the forensic. And then there are the people who come to us for heritage. And that is an entirely different beast. Because heritage is often not informed by the forensic. Heritage is more informed by memory. What a great time we had when we went, or grandma said this, or our family's history says that. 
And it's, again, very rarely supported by that forensic. So when you know that this is happening, you begin to see how things and movements that we are experiencing right now with basically every generation has a culture war. I have been doing this for 40 years now. And this is my third culture war. Okay? Because when I first started at 17, people didn't want us to talk about black people at Williamsburg. They didn't because it took away from even though there were black people who worked there in different capacities, they didn't want us interpreting the lives of black people. And what's crazy about that is forensically, Williamsburg was 52% black on the eve of the American Revolution. And 98% of our visitors had no clue So to say that half of your population, more than half of the population of the place that you come to visit is irrelevant, because that's essentially what they're saying to you, that it's irrelevant. We want to talk about the founders. And what we're really talking about is we really need to have a conversation about the nation builders, which came in every hue and every gender identification, even if they didn't sign a document. Right? Heritage making also gives us things like the youngest person in this room, if I were to ask them, have you heard one of these three things, raise your hand. So all of you can consider yourselves young. So feel free to raise your hand if you've heard one of these three things. I like to talk in threes. You'll remember it better, trust me. George Washington chopped down a cherry tree. He could never tell a lie and he had wooden teeth. That is heritage making, because forensically, none of that is true. None of it. And yet, it has persisted for over 200 years. Why? Because heritage making is really more about trying to form some cohesion for a community to build itself around. And George Washington became that person for this young nation. He needed to embody the values of this young nation that was trying to start its way as a nation built on ideas versus a nation built on legacy. And so George became the guy, <clears throat> just like Robert E. Lee became the guy during the, after the Civil War for the South, the white South, let's be clear, right? So, we have the forensic, which is the history. We have heritage. And the third piece of this wheel is memory. And that's where I tell people all the time, you have to be really careful about memory. Especially if you're talking about, and you have to be mindful that memory can be challenging as a forensic tool. And I want to be really clear here. If the tradition of a culture is predominantly the written word, there often is far less value in the oral history. But if you are an oral society and a culture where passing word from one generation to the next is sacred, 
that word is far more valuable. Far more valuable. And quite frankly, perfect example deals with the founder of this remarkable place. It's interesting of whose word was valued more. Jupiter and Madison Hemings, or the Carr family and the Randolph family. And scholars generally decided to ignore the Hemings family, who for their generations, six generations, told the story of their blood tie to Thomas Jefferson. And fortunately, new science says, well, yeah, at least two of them, right? But that's their family's oral tradition. But traditional forensic academic scholarship really ignored the Hemings family because of these differences in tradition. And, and it's a remarkable thing of what that does. And I had the pleasure of sitting down with um, one of those descendants, um, Shannon Lanier, um, back in the spring of this year when we had a conversation about what it was like for him as a black man navigating this ancestry that he's known his whole life. He heard those stories growing up too. He is the sixth great grandson of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. And Shannon talked about how was, he was in the fourth grade. His, they had an assignment where the students had to do family treats. And little eight-year-old, nine-year-old Shannon did his family treat. And he said, and I am the sixth grade grandson, Thomas Jefferson. And the teacher was so angry, you are not, stop lying, kicked him out of class, sent him to the principal's office. Now this is in the, this is, oh, Shannon's 40, so maybe this was in the 90s? In the 1990s. His mother came up to the school and said, guess what? He absolutely is. And here's the tradition, and here's the documents that we have as a family, documents meaning the oral histories that they were sharing, as well as what, had, what Madison had said, what Madison had, when during the interview. My point is, memory is a challenging thing. The other problem with memory is too often, it is um, directly tied to um, a particular person's point of view. And what I mean by that, and this is where I'm going to appeal to the, more, the older people in the room, if you recall exactly what you experienced, what happened to you when you heard about the Twin Towers falling on September 11th of 2001, raise your hand. Now imagine for a moment if I decided to tell a history of that day from only one of your perspectives. How much am I missing? And yet, this is what a lot of our institutions have done. So it's no wonder, again, as all of this new forensic evidence and new questions and things that are being asked, not only by the public, but by scholars and, and students are asking these questions and they're digging into your rare books. If they're allowed to come in here and look at them and touch them, I don't know, right? They make the appointment, they come and look, and they're going through all this stuff and they are having these, again, these new questions that are bringing new insights as they dig into these things and they're 
you know, doing the entire process, right? And they're vetting and they're going to the conferences and they're presenting their papers. You know what you have to do. God love you, I don't have to do that in the museum world, not really. I just have to evaluate my guests and make sure they got what we were trying to teach them, right? But at the end of the day, what happens is these three things, as I said at the top of this, is what our public is navigating. And at different points in time, because there are individuals who feel like their sense of community is being fractured, what are they doing? They're heavily leaning into heritage making. They're heavily leaning into getting rid of things that are deemed divisive, conflicting, tells you you shouldn't love your country, or they think makes people not love their country. Meanwhile, you've got a whole bunch of folks who are really fascinated by all this new information that has come down the pike, and they're looking at it and they're going, my God, look at all the stuff our country has done, and we need to do something about that, and we need to be more mindful because we are a country that was formed on ideas, even, if the, even the people who were putting those ideas forward, if they were imperfect and they hadn't figured out how to make that practical, well, that's what we have to do. And then these two people are going at it. And then you got this other group that's wrapped up in the memory piece who are feeling all nostalgic and are mad because we don't allow churning butter at the museum anymore or soap making at the museum anymore. And you know why we don't do that? <sighs> well, at Jamestown, they certainly needed to do that. But by the time we get to the American Revolution Museum at Yorktown, they are buying that stuff. They're buying them either from the plantations or they're being imported for Britain. They, it's far cheaper to do that than the toil in the Virginia sun making soap. And for the capital city, they absolutely didn't do it. So when those things were taken away, the memory folks are going, but I wanted my grandchild to have this memory that I had of what, da, 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 da. you see how this works? So what do we do on the museum side of the house? We let all of these folks in at the same time. And our goal is again, by using different teaching methodologies and different, quite frankly, in some cases, different pedagogy, depending on whether we're talking to an adult group or whether they have student groups or whether we have you know, sort of general community or that, that member who keeps coming back to different programs that we offer, we can use the narrative, we can use the archive, we can use the object. We can help use all of those things to meet them where they are. And our goal is, especially if they're in these two areas of memory, and that area of, 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 of heritage making, that what we're doing, because the museum is really based in that scholarship, in that forensic, that when they come to us at the museum, that we're actually creating new memories for them to share with their families that are informed by that scholarship. So instead of the conversation of showing you how to make soap, the conversation is, why would they? What, when they do start doing it again, why are they doing it? It is a political act. 
When we start drinking coffee instead of tea, it is a political act. That's the conversation that we're able to have with the visitor because of the objects and the things. And again, creating tactile experiences that they will remember. For the heritage-making folks, we take them where they are. And we bring them back to the forensic. And they may not always like it, but they understand it better. Because the thing that works best in that environment is empathy. As simple as that sounds, if you create empathy for the perceived other, it has a remarkable power because the same thing happens to those who are trying to look at this purely from the forensic and not understanding why people have this need for connection. That's why I love museums. That's why I made that decision so long ago that I wasn't going to be a lawyer. You know, I went to Wayman Mary. God love my poor parents. I went to Wayman Mary intent on being an attorney after I had spent that first summer at Colonial Williamsburg. Now, mind you, I grew up in Williamsburg. So I have a very different perspective of it. See, I got all the behind the scenes stuff that happened to make the magic on the streets there. And this transition that they were trying to make from nostalgia to the forensic. I was there one summer when they decided to dump the streets full of dirt and let the cow poop stay instead of the fine manicured and people lost their minds. Right, that was a step too far. And it smelled awful, it was great. <laughs> and after two years at Wayman Mary, I told my parents, I don't want to be a lawyer anymore. I don't want to do this. I don't know what I want to do. Because people in museums do not make money. I don't want to do this. I don't know what I'm doing. But it kept bringing me back because of the power of the story. And it was the one thing that I found, personally, that enabled me to use all of my talents simultaneously, to have these exquisite moments of pure scholarship and discovery, to have these moments of creating something that was going to impact another human being and get them to see their worldview a little differently. It's gotten me in trouble a few times, you know? But at the end of the day, I think we're all better for it. And so I don't tend to get myself wound up too much when we swing through yet another culture war. We use it as an opportunity, even if they feel more sophisticated each time. Tools are really the same if you know your history, if you know the forensic. They're using the same tools every single time. And the beautiful thing is, again, I'm in a space where I have the opportunity to help people see this dynamic and come to a better mutual understanding. Does it happen in one visit? Probably not. But that one visit can spark enough for the person who really is, has just enough openness to consider a story that wasn't theirs when they started. The person who, for the first time, when they realized or they were taught to know George Washington's teeth were actually made from ivory 
and the teeth of his enslaved. There is a moment of empathy and understanding and they want to know more. And that's how you begin the journey. And so with that, I will simply close and say all of us have a part of the tools to protect. Your learning about the power of the book, that, that manuscript, that document, that preservation of that thing that helps us on this journey. Thank you for that. As you go along your way, again, understand where the strengths of that are and where the limitations of that are and choose to dive deeper to find the rest of the picture so you're not caught in the memory trap, even as a scholar. And on that note, I will say thank you for your time and your attention. And we will open the floor to any questions that you will have. You have this fine young man over here in the pink shirt, polo. Is that Izod actually on there? It's not. Okay, I was going to say, dude. Okay, all the way in the back. And I'll try to, you, yes, you, sir. And I, it's, he's going to get to you, but I'll also repeat if necessary. Okay. So the analogy, uh, I know you're not trying to push too hard analogy between the museum and the museum, but one of the things I think about, particularly as colleagues in the Greek society, going through the collections and the museum, is the finding that every finding is Um, I, I will try to recap. He, he, he said the, that he doesn't think necessarily the analogy is as strong between museums and special collections places because the public doesn't you know, just walk up and come into a special collections area as they can come in and walk up into a museum and potentially our special collections. And the truth of the matter is actually in museums we do tend to be more accessible. Um, and I'm sure like you, especially if we're a public body, now, where I am right now at the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation, we are an agency of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Under the Freedom of, we are therefore subject to the Freedom of Information Act. Now, certain things like working papers, no, they, they don't have access to that. But if a member of the public wants to make an appointment to come in and see our collection or to see our manuscripts, they can certainly do that. But here's the difference too, is that museums also 
will frequently give what they call their behind-the-scenes experiences to let the public know what we have. And part of that is a building trust with your public. And it's just part of the reason why, uh, um, and I, uh, if, correct me if I'm, no, actually, it's the, um, the Institute of Museum and Library Services in, in um, partnership with Pew Charitable Trust did a survey, they do this survey like every two years, and museums are among the most trusted institutions in the country, far ahead of universities and colleges, because of our accessibility. So if you want that kind of experience, then that's what I would suggest where it is feasible to do so. We know we don't want necessarily visitors putting their hands on a 200 or 300 or 500 or 1,000 year old object. We certainly don't but we create environments where they can get safely close enough to it, where we will put it on display for them. And those same kinds of things can happen. The other thing that we try to do, and which is much harder, um, is the digitization. It just takes forever to digitize if you're trying to do it right, and then you've got to go through the process of indexing that puppy. It, it's a lot. It's a lot. Long answer, but I, 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 I hope, again, the, diff, the primary difference that I see isn't necessarily about what we hold. It's really about how we choose to allow the accessibility of what we hold. Because here's the other thing, too, to keep in mind. And this study was done uh, in 2021 um, through the uh, American Historical Association. And they did a story about how Americans get their history. Sixty-eight percent that engage with history on a regular basis do so through movies and TV. Thirty-eight percent engage with museums. Twelve percent go to a public lecture. Eight percent in a college class. And I think it was 32, 30, 32 percent will actually buy a popular history book. So, you know, no disrespect, but the Ron Chernows, the David McCulloughs, you know, versus the purely academic historian. Um, there are a few exceptions to that, clearly, but there are those popular historians that really, they put out a book, they drop a book, and everybody goes running to it, right? Which isn't a bad thing. It, it enables them to, to kind of move on. And neither is the movie is the bad thing, especially if it sparks some interest. The question is, how do we, on the forensic side of the house, help them navigate that? Um, and, and that's been, that's been a thing. You know, Jamestown, I can't tell you how many families and little girls came running to that place. I wasn't working there at the time, but I have heard the stories and I have seen the residuals of what happened after two, two films. Brave New World with Colin Farrell, which was horrible history, absolutely horrible, second only to Disney's Pocahontas, where everybody came looking for Mother Willow, and the diving cliffs of Jamestown, none of which exists, right? But what it did is it brought them to us. So while we can giggle about that, 
It brought them to us. So there is a place for that if it sparks an interest for them to know better and then we can replace, again, the nostalgia and all of that other stuff and help them lead them to what was actually what we forensically know and help them understand that the process of history changes because, again, each generation asks its questions. We learn more through those questions. And it's a beautiful thing. Next question. shorter-lived, and here's why. Hamilton, it's a, it was a Broadway show, which meant it had a far more limited, people knew the music before they ever saw the show. And then when Disney finally made the movie of the original cast in their last performance, more people got to see it, but it was still restricted because it was only on Disney Plus, right? So it doesn't have the same impact as a wide-release film. Now, every now and then you get that one-off that, well, and so the bottom line is yes, we do have people ask us, was Hamilton here at Yorktown, what did he do, and our team knows exactly how to deal with all that, and, you know, you know, why did he, and, and then we tell them things like, well, you know, he and George eventually fell out, you know, and you know, they have this whole really interesting dynamic, but yeah, our team knows how to do that and, and kind of lead that. When Hamilton was really, really hot 2016, 2017, 2018, they used to actually have sing-alongs and then follow-ups with um, basically like a historians at the movies kind of experience, where then they could talk to them about what was accurate and accurate and what was not, right? And 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 that's you know you don't want to bust people's bubble, you know, because but th but that's the thing it, it keeps them going. I've only seen it. I shouldn't say only. I've more recently I have seen the phenomena. Um, through HBO, surprisingly. And HBO, um, back in, uh, maybe it was during the pandemic, um, HBO had two shows that ran, I think, excuse me, 2019 and 2020. Uh, I love pop culture too, by the way, obviously. I gotta keep up with that to figure out how to, you know. But, um, so HBO had a series called The Watchmen which was a reboot of a movie that was from, I think, the 80s or 90s, and this amazing graphic novel um, story. It was just amazing. The original is amazing. The original um, Neil Gorman, uh, Gaiman uh, 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 graphic novel is just stunning. It's a stunning story. The movie wasn't bad either that came out 20-plus years ago. But HBO did this show called The Watchmen. And in that show, even though it's you know, science fiction, superhero-y kind of stuff, conspiracy theories, there was an episode that was devoted to the massacre of Tulsa in, in 1921. 
And people were literally all over social media going, did that really happen? What in the world? Right? And I was shocked at how much I was seeing it on social media feeds. I mean, people, the general public that had seen that film had started a conversation. The same thing happened with Lovecraft Country. And if you saw that show, Lovecraft, each episode was dealing with an element of the black experience in America. So whether it was the Green Book, about a, a special book that was produced to let black folks know where it was safe to stop and to travel and to get gas and to get food you know, in segregated America, to they had an episode about they, each, like I said, each episode had something, but they also had a Tulsa episode. And it sparked up again. And it led to that much larger conversation of Tulsa wasn't the only one between 1917 and 1923. And so it enabled academic scholars, the ones who engage in, in, on, on social media, and there's quite a few really prominent ones who do, um, really enhanced that conversation in remarkable ways. And I was watching it happen in real time, and it was extraordinary. So my point is, as much as we love engaging with each other, our work doesn't matter if we aren't finding a way to touch our public. Because the reason we exist is because the public has this need to preserve its story. And these archives and these objects and things are a part of that story. Next question. In the back, the young lady in the back. Hey, thank you for that. My mm -hmm. name's Amira. Hi, Amira. Can you hear me? Um, yeah, I could, please, no, speak into it. I'll yeah. see what happens. They probably have acoustics here were horrible. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking about it, I'm trying to form this question, so just bear with me as I may use my hands to talk as well. Um, I'm thinking about this as you're talking about heritage and memory and forensic and considering times in which perhaps the, the museum doesn't have the forensic evidence but may have memory, like, like oral history or um, histories may, may be, but the forensic evidence may be erased. Uh, I'm thinking, in, in my case, maybe about graffiti or, or things that are ephemeral in their nature as they're created, they're meant to be destroyed. Uh, how, how do you deal with that and think about that in a forensic way, or, or how in the museum may you consider these, these histories that are not as well documented, but maybe as their way of creation is not documented? That's actually where the research kicks in, the, additional, the need for additional research. Because the other thing that I have not mentioned is archaeology is really critical. And even, even in, and I don't like the word disposable, but in more organic um, place making and creative expression, right, um, the, what is left behind may give us a clue. Because here's the other thing, some things are not completely lost. There is a generational passing on. Um, a really good example would be the Sweetgrass Makers 
basket makers and uh, Gullah Geechee world. How, the materials are different, but the techniques are generational, and some of the techniques are brought in from specific groups in Central West Africa. So while some of those Central West African pieces may not be in a, as much of abundance because the art or the creation is something that is used in daily life, right? It is still there. I will tell you um, one of the things that we have that we have a specific challenge with, um, and that we are working really hard to connect the dots with, is really understanding um, Algonquin and Eastern Virginia woodland. Indians better because for a long time our institutions relied solely on John Smith's descriptions and the images that he made that he may not have completely understood you know and understanding that John Smith had an agenda right he had a serious agenda and people were coming for him so he writes this history to bring himself into a better light right so what we, what we have is the mix, right? So we've got the archeological work that has been done on several of these sites. Yes, some of our museums um, have, we've worked with Virginia Natural Resources where there have been human remains, where there's been some, um, I never get the phrase right, but basically the, biologic, the bio, uh, biological archeology span essentially, where they are, testing bone fragments, DNA, things of that sort, to give us a better idea about diet and things of that nature. And then the Virginia Indians themselves, which are a really interesting mix of peoples, right? Um, they, and, and it's, it's fascinating to me because, you know, we have seven recognized tribes here in Virginia, um, and there are 11, but there are 11, I mean, federally recognized, I'm sorry, and then there are 11 tribes in Virginia. And um, they all, you know, through the centuries, there's intermixture, so they look, you know, in a variety of ways. They are not like their Western Plains, you know, counterparts. Um, and so there's been even some suggestion that they are not real Indians, which is insane to me, because you know what? They are. They're culturally attached and still doing these things. And so we're listening to them in a very different way because these are also oral communities. And those oral traditions continue and those trades and skills in some area continue and we work with them. And we've made the decision in the last two years of not being extractive of those communities but being supportive of those communities. So instead of saying, hey, why don't you come to our museum and demonstrate your stuff? We go to their communities and learn and take our publics with us to say these things are happening in these communities and where are the beneficial opportunities for collaboration? Um, and, and that has been really, really fulfilling and we're still learning things along the way. So some of this stuff can take a long time. Sometimes new sciences are created along the way that help us what, with things that we may not completely understand right now. Um, you know, it's been things like, you know, the artists, you know, we may find, you know, like I think Banksy, for example, you may find that the spray paint that he's been using all this time, we might know what it is because they, you know, dissected it. But we may find out later 
two, three hundred years ago when it fades away or it's been painted over, that there was some element or some chemical in there that was important for the preservation of that work. And then that lets us know what types of things it could have been or potentially was. I don't know, I'm like imagining. Um, but the beautiful thing is there's, there is this opportunity to keep discovering and to keep learning. And sometimes it is also whose eye is looking at that thing that nobody thinks makes sense. You know, um, when I went back to Williamsburg um, in the 90s, um, in a more of a, a leadership capacity, I, there, was a, there was a lot of archaeology done at Williamsburg in obviously from the 20s through the 40s through the 50s and so on. They still do archaeology. Um, and there was one site in particular that we used to um, do programs to highlight the African, African and African American life on that site because it was a wealthy family. There was the widower and his two daughters and 27 slaves at this one house in Williamsburg, right? And archaeologists who had excavated that site in the 1940s found an area outside of the kitchen and the laundry where the enslaved people lived. And they said, oh, it must have been a trash pit. Or maybe one of the slaves forgot she actually set it on the floor and nobody moved it and it just stayed there. Because they had no idea what they were looking at. For those folks who would come in to work with us and who had some experience with Central West African religious culture and sense of cosmology, when we saw those areas and those fragments, we knew exactly what they were. And what we were looking at is the fact that when we went back to the inventory as well, that there were four African-born women at that site. And so they were spirit bottles that were being hung in the tree. The archaeologists dismissed this as people throwing medicine bottles out the back window out of, out of I kid you not. And the, the, the jar that was buried in the doorway was for protection. It was, it, was, it was intact what they found with herbs inside of it. And they dismissed it as maybe a child was, I think they said, I think the report actually said something to the effect of a child was playing and must have buried it there with, again, no cultural understanding. So we, that's what I'm talking about. We got to be really careful that we are seeing things and opening ourselves up when we're doing this work to really be able to expand further. I think we have time for one more question, and then we will, you know, drink and be merry. Yes, faculty member right up front. Hi, thank you so much for sharing your, your work and your life experiences. I think we've all found it incredibly moving and incredibly valuable. Um, my name is Lisa, by the way. I am um, so, every single day, I feel more and more kind of buried and, and despairing about the moment that we're in, in this country, where we have those of us who care about history and authentic history feel constantly besieged by those who uh, think history is simple and that the narratives that they've grown up with are the truth, even when we know they aren't. And I'm wondering how you engage with revisionists 
or not revisionists, but people who insist that re revising and broadening and, and thinking about history as messy and complicated, that that's somehow um, a betrayal of, of what they have always known and loved. And people feel really angry about that. How do you engage productively with that kind of element? And I'm thinking here about what we're seeing with school curricula, for example, um, and book, book, book banning, book burning, book banning. Thank you. Great question. Um, and it depends on the day, my answer. Um, I mean, I'm, like I said, I've been through this three times. It doesn't make me a pro. It just makes me see it. And there are moments when I'm, are we here again, where it's deeply, deeply frustrating. Um, and I let that frustration out. But I try to do it in safe space so that I have enough energy to go back and I will tell you what I said before about finding that empathetic place. Um, that I have found to be my best tool. Because arguing the forensic doesn't often work when a person is so wedded to being right about a lie. So instead what I have found is that it has to take on a point of empathy. And yes, we are watching that right now again. You know, Florida just put out their curriculum. You know, have to talk about the benefits to the individual who was enslaved. That's craziness to me. And of course, my initial instinct was, right, to have that moment. But then, Again, the empathy kind of kicked in, and I, so far I've decided to kind of stay out of it for the moment, because there are plenty of my peers out there doing the dance. Because I don't have to be in every fight. It's like, you know, it's like the, the, the flock of geese, right? Every now and then one of them pulls ahead, and then when they get tired, then another one comes on up, but everybody's still going in the same direction. That's how I am sometimes. Because let me tell you, when you're dealing with early America, we deal with that a lot but empathy works. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example of a conversation that I had, and I do not feel that it, it is in violating any confidentiality, and it occurred with a board member. And this was shortly after I took the role. And it was the summer of 2020, we've been through COVID, we've had all these protests and all these things going on. And this person, you know, we're sitting, you know, at a table for, in a committee meeting, and, you know, at that particular committee meeting, you know, I was the only brown face in the room and they decided that they would use me to get an answer about why those people are tearing up the streets and they hate America and why are they doing this and, right? You know, it wasn't during the meeting, it was sort of like that break time, right? They decided they want to have that conversation with me because in this country, if you work hard, everyone succeeds. I mean, we had a black president, for God's sake. Best and worst thing that ever happened. Because if you have one person of attainment, that's supposed to be like, right? Okay, but I digress. Or the model immigrant. Like, the, all these things that are really harmful. And so, anyway, this person says this to me. You know, and I said, well, 
I'm going to tell you a story. And I told them about two elements in my family, past one and a current one. The past one had to do with my family, um, my, my maternal grandfather's family, who in 1922, this family who lived very happily on their land of 1,500 plus acres in Cuthbert County, Georgia, had been on that land and worked that land since slavery. They bought that land as a family. And they had worked on that land for 50 years. And there were two brothers, my great-grandfather Homer, I'm sorry, my great-grandfather Adolphus and his brother Homer. And these two brothers, one had 21 children, one had 15. And together they lived on this land raising their families and farming and selling their wares. And my great-grandfather Adolphus was to take the corn to the mill. And he got to the mill, and the mill owner told him the price he was going to pay. Now, Adolphus already knew that the white farmers in the area had gotten a different price. And he asked for that price, dared ask for the same price for his corn. And that evening, White Citizens Council of Cuthbert County, Georgia, descended on the Coleman family farm and told them, you have till sun up to leave. Now, it just so happened that Homer was a minister. So they, let, they gave him a little bit of time, but Adolphus had to leave with his children. And my family, my great-grandfather, and my grandfather, who was a five-year-old boy at that time, had to pack up everything they could carry and leave that farm that night. The older boys got split up. Two of them went to Detroit. Two of them went to uh, Cleveland to find work in the autos. The daughters headed south to Florida, hoping that they could find jobs as domestics, the ones who were old enough to do it. And I said, and within less than a year, they seized the 1,500 acres from my family, including Homer. So the generational wealth, the opportunity to build, everything that they were trying to do was stripped from them in that moment. Their family literally dispersed and having to start over again. And that's not falling on hard times. That is a direct result of violence and white supremacy that has impacted my family. I said, but here's the other side of the story. My paternal side of my family was a group of formerly enslaved men from Tennessee. Two brothers, Isaac Clark and William Clark. And they left Tennessee after the Civil War and went into the swamps of Central Florida. And in 1896, 
They established the township of Eatonville, Florida, the first black incorporated town, and they protected their town by putting the properties in the names of their wives and the women because people were less likely to try to seize it from a woman. And they built that town. That, that side of my family is highly accomplished. I have 32 first cousins, only on just on that side of the family. There are 32 first cousins, all but two of us don't have advanced degrees. On the Coleman side of my family, there are 31 first cousins. Only five of us have college degrees, and those three of the five are me and my sisters. There is an impact. And the board member looked at me and had that moment. Well, and then they stopped themselves. And then they said, but that happened so long ago. I said, that happened at the end of the 19th and into the 20th century. Within a 40-year span, those two things happened. And I said, and I'm going to tell you another story about my 16-year-old son who was driving my car, taking his classmate back to his neighborhood because he was the only boy from the city of Richmond who had gotten into the governor's school where my son was a student and they befriended each other. And that boy lived in the projects and my son was driving my Lexus. And not only got pulled over for the, by the police, he got yanked out of the car and a gun was put on him because they thought he was a drug dealer at 16 years old. And my son had never encountered the police before. He was terrified and then he was angry. And yeah, he absolutely was on the streets of Richmond in the summer of 2020 when he graduated from the governor's school. But he was a completely different kid. A completely different kid. So I told that story. And the board member literally started crying and then said, Thank you. I had, I had no idea. I had no idea. Sometimes it's something like that with not anger or malice or sometimes it is just taking that moment to build empathy that gets people to understand something that they, their worldview would never understand. And my relationship with that board member is infinitely stronger because of it. That board member who, if we hadn't had that conversation, would probably be one of the people I'd have to battle over things that we're trying to do, is actually an ally in the things that we're trying to do. See my point? And on that note, I thank you all again very, very much for your time and attention.